Coming up on Green Signals, what is going on with LNER fares and ticketing? It's now clear that its simpler fares trial is turning out to be anything but simple. Will HS2 now reduce capacity to Manchester? And is the wider world and the mainstream media finally waking up to the true stupidity of Rishi Sunak's scrapping of HS2 North? The Conservative conference where ministers seemed unable to agree either on transport decisions or, more embarrassingly for them, with each other. And a new Green Signals feature, positive and good news from the grassroots railway, including the UK's very first railway station railway library. And it's in a glorious location too. Hello and welcome to Green Signals, your no-nonsense, no-punches-pulled, tell-it-as-it-is railway podcast. From me, Nigel Harris, in a very grey Lincolnshire, and... And me, Richard Bowker, here in uh, a grey and cold Wiltshire. It's as well we're behind closed doors, nice and warm, chatting about trains, isn't it? Absolutely. If you enjoy Green Signals, and clearly an increasing number of you do, don't forget to hit the thumbs up button if you're watching on YouTube. And please don't forget to hit subscribe either. That really does help us to grow the show. Sounds good, doesn't it? Grow the show. And do lots more of what you want and enjoy. You can also visit greensignals.org and sign up to our mailing list there so that we can let you know when we publish new episodes and also send you out some exclusive content from time to time too. Please keep your comments coming because we love reading them, don't we, Richard? <laughs> we do. Um, we had some crackers this week. Uh, I really like this one from uh, Dennis Jones, at Dennis Jones, 7836 on YouTube, who said, Hi, I enjoy every episode of Green Signals. Regarding ticketing, could you arrange for the rail minister to greet new rail travellers at New Street? Birmingham, obviously, and advise their options for travelling to Euston. It just might make him realise some reform is overdue. Thank you. Well, I suspect if we did that, I'm not quite sure it would uh, get the desired outcome, Dennis, but like the suggestion. Yeah, well, politicians are getting it less and less, Richard, as they retreat increasingly in their own strange view of the world. But the, the New Street suggestion is a good one. The first thing that the minister would have to do is advise people how to get into the station through the various barriers to the platforms that they want. It's not your favourite place, is it? <laughs> it I, must admit, I must admit, red, blue, I, I still get green. I don't know. I can't remember the colours. I still get a bit confused as well. But um, but there you go. It is. It is indeed. Um, um, I, I actually, I also noticed somebody on YouTube said they were enjoying listening. I, I, I can't resist this, actually. Yeah, because, I, thought, <laughs> I thought this might come up. Because you were the voice of their childhood, Nigel. Does that make you feel a little bit old? I mean, it was quite nice, though, really, isn't it? Well, yes, it does make me feel old. And it's certainly when I look at some of those videos and I think, who's that young chap? Um, standing there. But yes, it is actually very nice that people still remember with pleasure some of the many VHS programmes I presented over many years for both Steam Railway and Model Rail and Rail magazines, and especially with my old chums at Telerail up in the northwest. We shot videos of steam in Russia, in the Caucasus in 1993, in Germany and Poland through the 1990s, and then in China in 2002 and 2004. 
And we made them to entertain. And it's good that they clearly made an impression on some of our audience. And it is actually genuinely humbling to be remembered for something with quite such affection. No, it is nice. Uh, as, as you know, we've just been moving house recently and uh, I've still got a few old VHS tapes. I mean, actually, ironically, I've still got a couple that, that, you, that you did uh, all those there years ago. There you go. And I said to my daughter, I said, oh, look, I want to make sure I look after my VHS tapes. And you know what's coming next? What's that? <laughs> what's that? You know? Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Um, two other uh, messages we received. Um, first was from Jay Carroll, who's a senior asset engineer, uh, electrification, who said, um, hi, Richard, I really enjoy and value your podcast, but the last few weeks have felt a little deflating. Maybe you could consider adding a positive news section. It would be great to carve out a bit of space, perhaps at the end of the show, uh, to celebrate some successes and inject some more optimism. Just a thought, meant as genuine constructive feedback. Thanks for all the hard work the three of you do. It's a great service to the industry. Well, look, uh, Jay, we we think um, we thought about that brilliant suggestion for about ooh, I don't know, a couple of nanoseconds. Didn't we? Before all yeah. agreeing, it was absolutely the right thing to do. So um, do stay tuned to the end of the show. There's a, a new feature. It's a quick roundup of some um, good news, slightly quirky news, um, and we're going to do it at the end of uh, every show. So, so thanks, Jay. It was a, a great idea. Um, the other uh, message was anonymous, um, but actually incredibly helpful. Um, insight on the remarkable amounts of uh, traffic that the uh, western the great western region um is now having to deal with uh, and obviously a lot of it freight as well which is good to see and the very imp uh, significant impact that has on maintenance renewals and so on and so forth um so i'm going to be out and about in the very near future in the west with both network rail and with gwr seeing some of those challenges firsthand um so watch this space i'm actually really looking forward to doing that well, it sounds like it's, uh, it's a better alternative than actually working for a living, Richard. Jollying out, <laughs> jollying out on the Western. Doubtless you're taking your gimbal to shoot some video. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, gimbals, GoPros, you name it. So, uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Well, your um, your Monsal video played played very well. And if you look at the ticker on, on YouTube, it's um, it continues to increase. So you're doing well at the box office as well. And that's a sentence <laughs> I never thought I'd say to you. And it's one I never thought I'd hear either. <laughs> like the time I said it was the only time I was going to call you Mr. President because of your Class 40 uh, <laughs> associations. And now let's look at some serious current hot topics, starting with um, – it's actually a breaking story this morning, which we, we ought to just mention in passing, but which we can't deal with in detail. And that's what uh, appears to be the rail industry um, – not applying the legislation that the government has come up with to guarantee minimum service levels during strikes. I understand we've seen also in the news that LNER was going to, as they threatened five days or more strikes, and then LNER wasn't. But there's clearly much more to it than that, um, and we will get into it. But um, yet another bit of erosion of trust railway uh, on the railway, Richard, and a bit of confusion. Well, a bit of a bit of confusion, definitely. Um, I, I'm not sure about this legislation, right? Um, and when I say I'm not sure about it, I, I think the danger of stuff like this is that it, what it's almost signaling is we don't really, we're not really that bothered about fixing this dispute. Um, 
because uh, if we if you if you don't accept our offer we're going to make you work anyway and i i'm not sort of um, sort of shifting my sort of um positions of uh, uh on on the back of this on 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 other things i just feel that disputes are best resolved in a spirit of collaboration and working together not necessarily you know not the opposite so Look, there's more to unpack, as you rightly say, on this, and uh, and we'll be well, doing exactly that. It's also got a whiff of well, go on strike if you like, but we're going to make it so that it, it nullifies the effect of it by keeping just basic yeah. services going. So that again, it's uh, it's it runs against the grain with me too, and we'll be we'll be looking that into that in more detail. But for now, let's look at LNER's simple affairs that just aren't simple, it would seem. The true extent of the rather damaging reality of this simple affairs trial has started to become apparent this week, hasn't it, Richard? You've been researching this. What have you discovered? Yeah, well, nothing good, really, and unfortunately. I I guess I'm increasingly disappointed and and a bit, I suppose, a bit nonplussed, really, that this is kind of LNER. Me too. Um, Given their their usual and usually very assured passenger-focused approach. Um, Having said that, let's not forget it's a trial, um, and trials don't have to be continued. Um, So hopefully LNER will see that it shouldn't be rolled out. Um, Everyone's allowed to make a mistake, even the best of us. But let's just summarize where we appear to be. there are now three tickets on uh, selected <clears throat> flows. They're long-distance flows. So we're talking about Newcastle, Berwick, and Edinburgh, right? So that's what the trial is. And the, we all thought they were going to be advanced, which is very uh, inflexible, uh, off-peak, which is or super off-peak, which is kind of semi-flexible, and anytime, which is completely flexible, and prices to, to reflect that. And what we've ended up with is... A very flexible anytime ticket, cost a fortune, and then two, in effect, inflexible tickets, right? Um, and the the one that's the problem one, the off-peak ticket, uh, which had a degree of flexibility and it was refundable and you could use it by any reasonable route, is no longer refundable and it's no longer uh, flexible in terms of route and it's lost the regulated cap that the the off-peak um had and there's plenty of stories flying around twitter um from people who have seen prices which for the journey that last week would have been up to the cap of 87 pounds for uh the off-peak ticket are now i think i've seen i thought i saw a guy i think uh, rob beach was on was on x uh, as was the guy um girl who does every last station sort of showing screenshots of prices. I think in one case, 125 pounds, whatever it was. So this is uh, really uh, problematic. And I, I don't understand why this uh, new ticket is non-refundable, right? I mean, I can understand it from a top point of view. Well, we've got your cash, so if you, if you don't trap, but you know, and that's one thing for when your company's paying, but if you're paying, <clears> that's, <throat> that's clearly a re- really problematic. So why would they do this? Well, um, we know post-COVID, the area that's really benefited in terms of travel is leisure travel, right? And it's causing lots of issues in terms of demand. And we might talk a bit about that uh, later on, Nigel. But so this is quite a good way of 
yield manager burning off some of that demand in these yeah. sort of sort of shoulder uh, peaks. So it's good for the talk. I kind of get that. <laughs> But it's not good for certainly a group uh, of of passengers. And you know, the, somebody said, "This is is this the beginning of the end of the walk up and go railway?" And 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 the answer to that would probably be, "Well, yeah, if it carries on like this." Well, absolutely. Um, I also saw those um, <clears throat> Twitter screenshots, and I saw one worse than than yours. I saw somebody who found a, a hundred and ninety three pound. I think it was certainly in the hundred and nineties. Fair, which the previous week would have been 87. Um, and that's what sticks in the throat, isn't it, Richard? Given the huge amount of time we've all spent listening to politicians, ministers, and rail industry executives, both from the operational side and network rail, lecturing us all that it's always passenger first. Well, no, it isn't. Well, what they'll say is that uh, we've still got to fund the railway. And post-COVID, uh, uh, everything's changed and business travel's gone and commuting travel's gone. I mean, they're, they're two dramatic statements, really. Leisure traffic, yes, okay, that's coming back. But the yield's gone down. We've got responsibilities to fund this properly. We've got to close the gap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they'll say, oh, it's quite complicated. You've got to balance everything out. But um, there's another point. If we... Mark Smith made the made the point last uh, week when we were on the on the show and said the problem with this pilot is you can't actually roll it out um, effectively across the network without creating <laughs> yeah. the, the opposite of what we all need, which is we'll end up with more complexity, right? Not, so, not simplification. Not simplification. Um, so I mean, look, I really take the view if if L and ER, um, have dreamt this up themselves. Hopefully now they've seen that by and large the reaction to it has been entirely negative. In which case, just be big about it, admit you made a mistake, because um, everybody will forgive you immediately, right? Um, but but you've got to do that. Well, that's right. And I'm just reminded of um, Sir Robin Miller, who uh, who used to run an EMAP very successfully, always had an expression about doing new things, and he'd say, look, if you're not falling off your bike from time to time, you're not pedaling hard enough. So I don't blame LNER for having a go, but we need to know why. But what you just described, Richard, is classic crisis management. And it's actually very simple. Um, when you, And anybody who has a personal relationship knows this. Um, when you screw up, you admit it quickly. You put it right quickly. And you then apologize and mean it. No non-apology apologies. And then you get to move on. But you have to do one and two before being allowed to go on to number three. Well, quite. And, and I suppose the alternative is that it's actually not been dreamt up by LNER. It's actually been dreamt up by uh, government. That's not impossible. We don't. I, well, I don't know that, so no, um, I'm not, not claiming anything. Um, but if it has, then we need to know that this is uh, this is a new policy that's been yep. tested out, right? Yep. Um, and they might, they might, and there's, but yeah, and they might want to look at to roll it out on other routes because. It's not fair, if that's the case, to throw LNER under the bus. Yeah, um, yeah. So we do need to know uh, what the thinking is behind this. And, and probably the only people that can say that to begin with is LNER. Well, indeed, a bit boldness needed. Look, the DFT has got form on exactly this strategy over very many years, Richard. During the annual New Year hikes of regulated fares and season ticket prices, the DFT routinely 
sat on its hands, kept quiet, letting the tox take the heat from the media and public, as they knew no better as to who was to really be behind those increases. So it would fit that policy, that approach. It would. And incidentally, um, David Horn tweeted uh, that he was pleased to see an off-peak Friday fairs trial being introduced on the on um, on TFL, right? Which is very complicated, by the way, because of all the interoperability with 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 uh, with talks. But anyway, unsurprisingly, his that post was was um, uh, met by people saying, well, "Hang on a minute." How can you be supporting that when you've just done what you've done on LER? Now, they're not quite the same, but I wonder whether that tweet about the TFL thing was actually a glimpse into what he, what he really thinks, but we don't know. So, um, you know, so come on, David, come, come and tell us. Maybe maybe he was um, sending a bit of a, a coded message. Well, I, I yeah, I mean, we don't know, do we? But, so, but we need to hear it from the horse's mouth. It comes back to, to this for me, the big issue. The big issue is we, we face we face a choice. We're, we're at that kind of, what do they call it? Like the fork Watershed in the, moment. Watershed moment. Okay, that's fine. I was going to say fork in the road, but I like watershed, right? So, so what, we're watershed moment. Um, what do you do? I always kind of, you know, ask yourself, what would the really entrepreneurial uh, railway managers of the, and I'm not talking about private sector ones. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, like, like, like a guy like Chris Green, right? What would they do? And what they do is they would grow their way out of the problem. Absolutely. They would grow the revenue base. They would grow passenger volumes. This fares trial runs the risk of doing the opposite. Yeah. And you can't cut your way to success. You can only ever grow your way to success, which DFT and HMT just uh, just don't seem to appreciate. Um we will ask. Um, we've been hoping to ask LNER to come and talk to us about this, but we haven't. Uh, we haven't yet succeeded. But hopefully, we can. Uh, we can put that right. Moving on, is HS two actually going to result in less capacity to Manchester? Green signalers will remember Professor Andrew McNaughton, HS two's former technical director, described Sunak's mad HS two decision as a capac- capacity reduction exercise when he was a guest a few weeks ago. Now, we have a recent big story in the FT, the Financial Times, headlined, HS2 considers scrapping first-class seats to maintain passenger capacity. Cram them in, otherwise. It continued that HS2 is considering getting rid of all first-class seats on HS2 trains to avoid a drop in capacity from 1,690 to 1,530 seats per hour between London and Manchester, which Sunak's insane decision will bring in its wake, undermining the aim of HS2 in originally, of course, which was to massively increase capacity and equip the railway for what it needs for the next 100 years or so. And do you remember when um, the Network North document was released? Who could forget (laughs) that? Who could forget that delightful piece of work? It normally gets a giggle, doesn't it? and it would be funny if it wasn't actually so utterly depressing. But uh, the in that they talked about uh, there still being a. I think I think right. We might check this, but I think it was a near doubling of capacity yeah, on the do, route. Yeah. Right, which I'm sorry, um, we've we've never seen the analysis support that. I mean, I've asked for for it, and you know, listeners will remember that I got a non-answer from the DFT. But um, it, it's um, it's a big issue. 
What I'm really worried about now um, is, is that it feels like there's a, a near state of panic, right? Because the one thing you don't do is take rolling stock contracts and start doing big variations on them in a panic without really thinking it through. So whether that's taking out catering or taking out first class or all the rest of it, um, because, you know, the rolling stock manufacturers, you know, they're commercial, they're pretty sharp. They'll rub well, their hands and go, all right, fantastic. Variations it's going to cost Yeah. And so you don't do it unless you've got a very clear strategy. And, uh, the, the best analogy I could think of was, you, you remember if you ever watch kids play football when they're really little, what they do, <laughs> they all sort of kind of congregate around the ball and then somebody kicks the ball and then like a little mob, they move, they all follow the ball, right? right? They all chase and they it. Sort of move around the pitch and it's actually painful to watch because it's there's no strategy, there's no marking, there's no there's no playing into space. It's just like this little kind of mob runs around the pitch. It feels like that's what they're doing at the moment inside the DFT. It's like, oh, heck, uh, government have made this decision. Right, well, let's run over there, right? And, and they'll, they'll find a problem with that. Well, let's run over there. And that is not a way to handle and manage multi-billion pound contracts. You will get caught out. I'd, I'd offer a slightly different uh, analogy, Richard, which I rather like, I have to say. Um, doubtless many of our audience will remember Dad's Army. <laughs> and the and the spectacle of uh, of of Corporal Jones um running four steps in one direction and then three steps in the other waving his rifle about all the while yelling don't panic don't panic and if yeah. if you google Corporal Jones don't panic there's a very funny set of movies on youtube of, of just clips of that of him running around shouting don't panic well maybe we, maybe we should put a link on the website because that's what the dft is now starting to look like oh it would be quite good wouldn't it yeah i don't look, I get and do you know what it it, it almost <laughs> since we're, since we're on a bit of a roll with this i mean why would you get rid of first class, right? Now, I, I know I'm not talking about, you know, an egalitarian world where everybody, you know, if no one can have it, then everybody, you know, should, can't have it, that, that kind of stuff. Um, with first class, it actually, for long distance, it's a good thing to give people who want to the opportunity to pay more for a a, a, an enhanced service, you will make more money. Right? Yeah, including um, governments, including governments. So, yeah, so uh, it's back to the kind of running around the football pitch thing again. Oh, no, we've got to demonstrate we haven't got fewer seats. Well, let's get rid of something <clears> that could have made us some more money then. And when you look at European operators, they're going the other way, right? So I think in some of the Italian, the, the Frecciarossa service, for instance, which I probably pronounce that badly but that's my that's my go anyway i think they've got four classes on that so they they enhance them up you know in my airline days you know we would have multiple classes because you can premium economy and first and spam. absolutely yeah. you yield manage across the boundaries um it also allows you to do interesting things in times of um lower demand or when you can't get the business travels you remember the weekend first you know every, I mean, all that kind of stuff why would you do that Right, and it just seems to me like it's well. There's, there's no long-term vision. It's just about cost, isn't it? It's like the arguments that we had when the pen, um, 
the um, the Hitachi trains were being made, just jam the seats in as many seats as possible. Yeah. Um, I remember somebody who went on the Lumo launch said they'd been told that they, they had to have 400 seats on the train, which is why there's no room for luggage and that kind of thing. The oh, And while we've got seats jammed against walls where there's no view, the yeah. only thing that matters to the DFT is the cost. Do you know, fun fact, I don't know whether this is a fun fact or not, but when we were designing and, and ordering the uh, buying the Pendolinos, the Class okay. 390s, one of the things that we looked at, genuinely looked at, uh, in order to maximize yield was having part of standard class in a three plus two seat configuration, oh. right? I knew you'd say that, right? No. And I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this particular meeting where Ivor Warburton, do you remember Ivor? I don't. Just, who, who could forget? Who, who was brilliant, actually, because he, sometimes he didn't say very much and then he would just say everything right and make and I remember it just, this is madness right and explain sort of why from a passenger experience all the rest of it and we never did it so you know it's it, it's all right to think about these things but don't actually do them right you <laughs> should they're... you should think about these things you know mm. but Ivor was a, was a classic, very daunting bloke wasn't he i mean to this day he will point out to you they handed over the west coast main line with no speed restrictions on it i think but um i am um, i've done the gig of the retired railway officers association in south london a couple of times and the first time i did it a bit apprehensive there was Chris Green, Bob Breitwell, Gordon Pettit, and Ivor sat on the front row right in front of the lecture. <laughs> yes, and Ivor sat there, and his body language said it all, and his body yeah. language said, yeah. go on then, give us what you've got. Look, you've played in bands as well. You'll have had audiences like that, Richard, don't you, where they sit oh, back and say, yeah. go on, entertain <laughs> me. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't always end well oh. either. Just the last point on the West Coast. Um, there was a, I don't know if you heard, there was a really good piece that Evan Davis of uh, yes. PM program did yes. when he went out to Durft. Right, Daventry. Which is Daventry International Rail Freight Terminal. What a brilliant acronym that is. And he did a couple of great interviews actually with Maggie Simpson. Of course, we had on, uh, on Green Signals recently and Tim Shoveler, who's the uh, chief executive of uh, Freightliner. It's well worth listening to if you can still get it on catch-up or something because both Tim and Maggie explained that the decision around HS2 uh, not only limits the potential for future growth. I mean, Tim was very straightforward and said, I'm actually really concerned we're going to go backwards. Backwards, not run what we've got. From what we've got, which was something that Maggie had hinted at when she was on Green Signals. I mean, this is serious, serious stuff. This is not the railway and its senior people crying wolf and coming up with a, you know, a, a, a way of trying to get people to reverse the decision just for political reasons. This is because we are genuinely concerned, really concerned that we're going to end up with a reduced amount of capacity. Oh, there's call attention. No, it's not call attention. There's a whole series of uh, signal box bells going there, Richard. I know, I know. <laughs> you, just in case anybody's wondering what on earth we've just been talking about, I've got a grandfather clock which has just has just um, decided to um, tell us what time it is. So there you go. But it does sound very much like a signal box bell, which is absolutely great. Um, and I guess all that brings us on rather neatly to the next piece of ministers <clears throat> running around chasing the ball. Um, the concern, that's going to come up again and again, is that, that, that sort of, we must try and find a bit of video. We could illustrate the point with it, couldn't we? 
Um, the Conservative conference recently where ministers couldn't get their ducks in a row or put another way, find their own strategic backsides with both hands, it seemed to me. On last week's show, we talked about Defence Secretary Grant Shapps pouring very condescending cold water on Northern Mayor's Andy Burnham and Andy Street's proposal um, for high-speed rail north of Birmingham in an interview with ITV News. Since then, the waters have become even less clear, or as I might say, murkier still, haven't they, Richard? Well, they have a bit. Um, I mean, last week after Grant Shapps was interviewed, um, there was a Conservative uh, conference uh, in London, I think, when um, Transport Secretary uh, Mark Harper uh, was quoted by uh, Sky News, I think, um, saying that he and the Prime Minister had given a commitment to Andy Street, uh, the, mayor, the Mayor of Birmingham, uh, West Midlands, to examine any proposals that he uh, brought forward. And actually, if you remember just to, just what the background this was, I've got, I've got the quote here. So when uh, the Prime Minister cancelled uh, HS2 North, um, Andy Street said, Delusion or not, I believe through this work, i.e. him looking at other options, a high-speed link between Birmingham and Manchester can be revived and I'm convinced we can find a way to get back on track. And the Prime Minister said, I say this to Andy Street, a man I have huge admiration and respect for. I know we have different views on HS2, but I also know we can work together to ensure a faster, stronger spine, quicker trains, more capacity right, between mm. Birmingham and Manchester. So that's the, that's the kind of the context for it. So... You know, Mark Harper actually not unreasonably was saying, we said we'd listen and we're going we're gonna to listen. He, I mean, the Secretary of State, Mark Harper, also said he was somewhat sceptical about whether the project could be funded without cash from the public purse. Well, it can't, right? We explained this last of week. It can't. Two sources of principal money, right? And unless you're going to cover the entire thing from fares, which you won't, by the way, then it's going to need a lot of support. But that's still worth paying for because of social benefit and all the rest of it, all the stuff we, we know well. But he nevertheless promised to listen. Well, that's good. But doesn't it come across a bit like Harper, how do I put it, seeking to navigate around those ridiculous comments from Shaps? Why doesn't he just shut up? Um, to mitigate the impression that they're all over the place on policy. Well, it does. Because it, 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 Mark Harper was then... Um, either followed or proceeded, I presume followed, you know, in terms of um, protocol and that, by Rail Minister Hugh Merriman. Um, and we should say, right, I mean, lots of people tell us that um, Hugh Merriman does get out and about. He does. He has spent time out on the railway. He understands the brief. He was chair of the Transport Select Committee. And, you know, quite a lot of people have told, certainly me privately, He's, you know, he's, he's a committed guy. You know, he's really quite, you know, he kind of gets it. So it's interesting that he said, as a conservative, I always welcome private sector investment in the railway. Our plan is clear. They, and I'm, by that he's talking about, I think, Andy Street and Andy Burnham, they might have something else they, they want to actually bring forward. We will see what it is that's you know, what their proposal. Our plan is that we're not taking HS2 further north. Eventually, we will then look to sell that land off. So we'll need to make sure there is no overlap on what other people want to do themselves. Now, that 
you can actually read that in a quite a positive way because what he's almost like saying is, like, guys, if you've got a plan, you better blooming tell us because if that if you're going to need some of the land we've 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 acquired or some of the rights we've got it would be sensible for us not to sell that off first. I mean, that's kind of how I read it. So you've got one guy going, oh, kind of come and tell us, and another guy going, oh, I'm a bit sceptical about this, and then another guy going, no. <laughs> so, you know, the whole thing is just like, have they, have they talked? <laughs> I mean, well, well, exactly. They're all over the place. And I agree with what you say about Hugh. I've known Hugh many years, and I actually really like the man. And I was pleased when he was appointed rail minister because he, all those things you said are true. Now, this is just my strictly personal opinion. Um, I just want, he wants to stay on as rail minister because he can always do more inside the tent than he can out. Um, I don't wonder if, um, if he's not maybe just holding his nose on some of the things he has to do um, and then saying stuff like this, because it looks to me like he's slipstreaming in behind Harper's comments about being open-minded, not closing the door on Burnham Street. The big question is how much sincerity and magnanimity is there and how much of it is it is insincere political window dressing to merely appear reasonable? Well, there is... There's a principle in government, as there is in any, I suppose, any corporate world, really, which is the doctrine of collective responsibility. You know, once yes. you've said your piece, and once the decision's been taken, uh, you have to kind of get, get with the program, as the Americans would say. Um, and I get that is absolutely right. You can't govern any other way, right? So um, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Um, and, it, and if it could be the... The rail minister has said his piece and uh, a decision's been taken and now he's kind of got, they've, they've just got to go and implement it. And he had his opportunity. And that would be entirely normal and not, and not yeah. unreasonable at all. So, or you resign, don't you? So, um, If it's such a serious thing, you've always got that option, clearly. <clears throat> so I, I'm, you, you know me, I'm, I always tend to see the sort of the, the I suppose, the, pos say the positive side. I always give people the benefit of the doubt. I suspect what we're seeing in action is um, – collective responsibility and and therefore what Hugh is signaling is actually genuine which is we're going we need to hear what they've got to say because until we have heard what they've got to say we can't really form a view on it that's fair enough he also said interestingly um that rail was the green clean way to get around and that young people um, were not taking up driving licenses in quite the numbers that they were or used to um, because they see, um, quote, uh, the train as their mode of transport, which I thought was quite interesting. So why don't they act like it? You really couldn't make this up. Look, Richard, I think we're going to have to start issuing formal invitations for Harper and Merriman and others to join us on this show. And then if they refuse or fail to respond, we tell our audience that they either bottled it or ignored us. Um, I think it's time for Green Signals to up the ante with these people who are allegedly acting on our behalf. Really put them on the spot. Hold the feet to the fire, right? Uh, yeah, I think it'd be, listen, what, what's the worst that can happen? They might say no, right? But, I but we tell people that. That's what we tell them, <laughs> that they had a chance to put their view and decline, refuse, fail to do so. I'm fed yeah. up with it. It is it is frustrating because um, you know statistics start to get used in certain ways. So um, 
and it can be misleading, right? So they're not necessarily wrong, but they can be a bit misleading. So I'll give you an example of that. So the Secretary of State said 8.6 billion would be spent on uh, road improvement schemes. And the justification for that, because 60% of the journeys people make by car, 4% are by bus, 2% are made by train. Um, so I think, he said, spending a third of the total transport budget on one train line was disproportionate. Um, so what we're doing is rebalancing that funding. But that is only part of the story. How how the hell can he say all that with a straight face immediately uh, after or before Merriman's comments about driving becoming less popular with an increasing number of youngsters? Do they think we don't notice these clumsy, sloppy, and frankly incompetent contradictions? Well, yeah, but they're but but they're not. I suppose that's the point, isn't it? They're not they're not actually wrong, right? It, it's just so it is true that if you take all journeys. Um, that, that those statistics are are probably uh, right, but then you know if you look at other other uh, statistics, actually I'll tell you what. Um, one of the things I've having been moving house recently, as you know, you find things like VHS tapes that you forgot you'd got, right? And one of the things that I've got, I'm, I'm actually holding it up to the camera. <laughs> so if you if you're listening on the podcast, you won't actually get this at all. But I've got a document there. Ah. Um, which was something that uh, we produced at the SRA called uh, Everyone's Railway, right? Now, these were the numbers 20 years ago. Let's be absolutely honest, right? But um, I remember this particular number where we actually pointed out that rail's market share is actually very high for certain kinds of journeys, right? Not Not just long distance, because we know, incidentally, that a huge number of uh, journeys are under five miles, whatever it is. So, for instance, um, back when we wrote this in uh, 2003 or 2004, whenever it was, we said rail carried 40% of travel between Manchester and Leeds and 55% between Manchester and Newcastle, just as two examples. So Perfect examples. Yeah. So it's, you know, what did they used to say? Lies, damn lies, lies statistics. statistics. You know, rail plays a vitally important role in some things. And ask yourself this, Secretary of State, if the 1.4 or 1.5 billion passenger journeys or whatever it there are now, all decided to decamp onto <laughs> other modes other than rail, how would we cope? Right? Well, we how would we cope with that? And the answer is, we wouldn't cope with that. So truth is that until you invest in effective public transport, it, you're not going to rebalance it. You're not going to meet your carbon objectives, you know, et cetera. So it's, you can't just take a narrow view of this. You're right about that. And it's interesting. Funny enough, I was, I was thinking of mentioning everyone's railway seriously because I'm, I'm not seeking to um, um, blow too much sunshine up your ass, Richard, as they say. But that document was one of the best do- railway documents I think I've ever seen. Um, I just wonder if there's a PDF around of it somewhere we could put it online because I know some of the numbers will change, but yeah. the, the philosophical approach and the thrust of the arguments behind that document um, are every bit as relevant as they ever were. Yeah. yeah. So no, maybe, I, I completely agree. Um, maybe if anybody's got a PDF of it, either Jim Steele. Well, I can probably. Well, Jay, well, I was going to say maybe Jim because if J- you've Jim got was, one, uh, I think we should put it. I think we should put it online because it was a brilliant read at the time. Because I remember at the time, government was going, "Oh well, rails only two percent." Alistair Darling particularly, and he made a very similar comment to me 
um, that um, uh, that Harper said, about, you know, Nigel, he said, why is it for an industry that carries 2% of our people, I spend 40% of my time on it? I, I, because, <laughs> because it matters, Alistair. It's important. Yeah. Um, and when the roads are full, that's it. Um, well, we'll just keep plugging away at it. We, we keep will, plugging away. We yeah. will continue, you know, at risk of sounding repetitive, but that's what a um, that's what a com- campaign amounts to. And we will continue to call out claptrap, political or otherwise, wherever we see it. Okay, well, there's, there is, I'm just mentioning claptrap, there's a lot of that on X too. I'm trying to get used to calling it that. But there is some really interesting um, stuff um, crops up on it. There was an interesting graph a couple of days ago showing long-term traffic trends, and it was actually horrifying seeing the soaring increases in road traffic since 1949. There was more than a, wait for it, 12-fold increase from $28.9 billion to 356.5 billion vehicle miles. This was largely cars where there's actually been a 20-fold increase alone. An astonishing increase, and it's clearly not sustainable to keep increasing. Interestingly, bus traffic has stayed broadly the same since 1949. Now, we mentioned Alistair Darling a minute ago, and I also distinctly recall a conversation with Alistair when he was Secretary of State, um, when the the driverless cars argument was on the march again. And he said, it's just a non-starter, Nigel, because there's no way we can control 24 million cars on the road, private cars. I Googled it the other day, and the answer now is just shy of 32 million. Right, so I'll leave that one hanging in the air for you to, uh, to mull over. And finally, as we promised up front, after all that half-empty stuff, we're going to go to f- half-full mode now. We're going to start closing this show on some positive developments, Richard. The big strategic stuff is just too negative and depressing, and it's given us two, or you, too many opportunities in the past few weeks for Victor Meldrew moments. So it's about time we were a bit glassful, half full, I think. And you know what? Down at grassroots level, as we always used to find with the National Rail Awards, there's plenty of good stuff happening. And so I'm inviting our listeners and YouTube viewers to start letting us know of encouraging, positive, ground-level good news that they're aware of in their area, and we'll feature it here, shall we? Uh, Do do you know what? I think it's a brilliant idea, and it doesn't, you know, big or small, um, yeah, there's some uplifting stuff going on out there, so we should showcase it. The people working so hard to achieve these things deserve better than there for efforts to be featured in maybe the local newspaper, but otherwise be overlooked. And so I'm going to start by talking about Kent's Bank Station on the Cumbrian Coast former Furnace Railway mainline. Now, Kent's Bank is a little station between Grangeover-Sands and Ulverston on the mainline from Barrow-in-Furnace to Lancaster. The, um, the station house there has been bought by Professor Paul Salverson, who's very well known in the railway. Um, his biggest legacy being the uh, he was the founding father of the community rail movement, which changed the landscape and the fortunes of rural railways, particularly everywhere. He's a lifelong um, railway person. In 1967 and 68, him and his mates at Bolton used to be unofficial cleaners of steam engines on Bolton Shed. Uh, he spent a spell working at Horwich Works. 
Um, it was a pay train guard conductor, I think, based at Blackburn on the line from Preston to Cone, which you and I knew um, so well, Richard. And he's very well known as a left-leaning, very progressive, pragmatic thinker um, on railway policy generally. But he, he just gets stuff done. He does a newsletter. But he's bought Kent Bank Station House and he's turned it into Britain's first and it's unique railway library. And it's based largely on on his collection of books, but he's inviting donations from other people, and he's getting that in as well. The emphasis of the collection is on the history of social railways, including rural and community railways. Um, and it was opened by Lord Hendy um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and everybody who went found it very easy to get to. If you're in London, it's a single change at Lancaster, and there's an hourly service to Barrow and Ulverston, so you can get there pretty easily. There's a growing number of books for sale. If they've got duplicates, visitors can use a cosy reading room complete with a stove and free tea and coffee. Um, it's looking for subscribers to help defray the basic costs of keeping it warm and dry. But it's brilliant. I, I went there um, and he's he's bought or he's a, procured a, a repro historic looking station clock, which has gone in the round stone place where the original was. He's crowdfunding a, a, a Kent's Bank maroon totem, um, which um, which actually Peter Hendy pointed out in an auction to him, and I think they paid 1,600 quid for that. That's up there. And it's in a glorious location. I mean, this um, this view of the station that Paul took just shows how a classic English country station it is. But if you turn round at that spot, the view across Morecambe Bay is utterly breathtaking. So give it a go. And well done, Paul. It makes there's no advantage for him other than just doing it. But it's it's added a facility at uh, Kent's Bank Station. The people who work round there and help keep the station neat and tidy are, are falling in, and it's a really really good thing. It's a, it is a brilliant thing. So well done, Paul, and everybody involved with that. And uh, I, I must admit, I. It's, a, it's such a glorious part of the world. I'm, I'm going to make a trip up as well um, on the back of um, all that I've seen and, uh, and heard. On the subject of stations, though, another, another good one. Did you see the um, restoration work that's been completed at Bruce Grove? I did. Which is very different to Kent's Bank. It, it, doesn't, have a, it doesn't have a view of um, Morecambe Bay. It has a view of Tottenham. Um, but uh, it's an absolutely superb uh, piece of work it was a project that was instigated by transport for london to improve station um, efficiency or reliability but it's got quite a lot of historical features and quite a lot of charm and they've they've restored them all um uh, there's a couple of pictures if you're watching on youtube there's a couple of pictures that you'll uh, be able to see but we've put we've put them on um, our um uh, on blog on on the website uh, greensignals.org the Railway Heritage Trust uh, had a big part to play here. I think there was about a £35,000 grant. It funded the installation of fireplaces, electric radiators, reproduction it's benches. It's really absolutely glorious. superb. Somebody said, oh, maybe you should record an episode of Green Signals from there. I mean, I must admit, quite a good idea. I mean, it's probably a bit echoey. That's the only thing because it's, it's quite hard services, but but it's not a bad shout. Um, but it, it's superb. I mean, it originally had uh, several rooms, very typical of that Victorian era. Um, they were all decommissioned in 1980, and now they've been brought back to life. And it is absolutely 
stunning. It's not the only example of the Railway Heritage Trust doing stuff like this around the country. There's plenty of others. This one's particularly fine, I have to say. You just give me an idea there, Richard, the outside broadcast thing. Um, the Today programme occasionally does an outside broadcast of its live show with a group on the stage and Justin Webb or Nick or whoever in a university or somewhere with an audience who you can hear murmuring and clapping and all the rest of it. Maybe, maybe we ought to think about doing that. Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should get a little camera to get set up. I think like... we should move. I think we should move swiftly on. <laughs> that, sounds like a, that sounds like quite a high-risk strategy. No, it anyway. sounds like good fun. Anyway, look, whenever government ministers seek to excuse their declining support for railways, they always, always cite changing use since COVID by which they mean fewer passengers and they imply that demand is flatlined. Right, Richard? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, 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 this changing use thing is really weird, isn't it? Oh, there's, there's no one's commuting now. Everybody's working from home and um, business travellers aren't using it. But we know there's some truth in that. Um, but leisure traffic is clearly, is clearly booming. And um, I was out on the railway last um, week uh, the weekend it was my it was Lucy's thirteenth birthday, so we went to Bath for a teenager. The, the yeah, I've got three teenagers now. Yeah, um, fairly terrifying. Um, but we went to uh, to Bath, which from Chippenham is is like ten eleven minutes. It's fantastic service and um, half hourly service. It was absolutely rammed. I mean, we we stood. All the way to, I say all the way. It's like a, it's like a long tube ride, isn't it? Really, it was, it was no problem, but it was absolutely packed. Going to Bathroom, and then we came back. I think on the seventeen forty three. Full and standing, equally packed. Coming back, um, got some slightly crazy um, responses. I, I tweeted about it, and mm. so, oh, this is this is terrible. This is. It's not, in a way. It's terrible if we don't do anything about it, but it just demonstrates that demand's there. Um, big shout out to um, the staff on, on Great Western because it was busy. The, the station staff at Chippenham, I know you know you always support your local, support your local station, but they're absolutely terrific. Uh, they're also brilliant at Bath. Um, there's a beautiful, beautiful uh, a ticket office um at uh, Chippenham, oh, okay. which has been kind of restored and lovely wooden um, counters in front of the windows. And that was busy. Um, you know, I think I put on a Twitter, shocked. shocked. <laughs> right. So there you go. No, it's good. Um, so no, we had a great day out and it was railways doing what, what it's best at. And I know Mark Hopwood of GWR is trying to get a third service um, uh, per hour on the route because he's trying to um, get the Bristol to Oxford service back. So, look, it's absolutely um, – it was a great example of of the railway doing what the railway does better than anybody. Why would you drive into Bath? Bath? We did it with a family rail card and paid absolute peanuts, and it was relatively cheap to park. And, frankly, if you did it any other way, you were, you'd be daft. We really need to see a lot more of that, don't we? So there you go. Um, good news in your part of the railway. Do please let us know. And meanwhile, Richard, maybe you could share a picture of that Chippenham ticket office with us. Uh, well, I will do. I will put it on the. Um, we'll put it on the website. Um, it is, it's it's lovely. It's really really nice. Um, uh, but it's 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 brought to life by great staff. So uh, so yeah. Um, anyway, finally the quiz. The quiz. Um, we got. A lot of answers, jeepers, uh, this week. Um, and a few slightly different ones um, because, well, <laughs> you, you could argue it was a bit of a trick question. It wasn't it, meant to be. It was. It wasn't. 
Anyway, right. Uh, as you can see, uh, total unanimity. Uh, the question was, between which two cities did the Orient Express originally run? Uh, the answer we were looking for, or certainly the answer I was looking for anyway, um, was Paris to Varna. So well done to uh, G. Williams on YouTube, who was the first in there with the correct answer. Now, we, we would have also accepted Paris to Constantinople, or obviously Istanbul as it now is, which isn't actually wrong because um, the Orient Express as a service did terminate there. But when the service launched in 1883, for about the first five, six years, I think, the trip from the bit from Varna to Istanbul was by ferry. So the train went as far as Varna until 1889 when the whole trip became a So, yeah. So, uh, well done. Um, we, we, we've, we've, we've got to accept Varna because technically that was what happened in 1883 um, when it launched. So there you go. Fun fact for the day. Bit of a nerdy answer. Slightly delighted that the first person said Varna, but there you go. Um, so determined was one listener, Nigel, uh, on, our, on our YouTube channel that they now skip uh, to the quiz question first so that they can answer before anybody else, which I actually thought was sneaky but quite smart, um, uh, uh, which is, shows real commitment. Uh, uh, wasn't, wasn't, still wasn't the first, though. Um, G. Williams was, uh, was really fast off the buzzer. Um, so this week's quiz, uh, I think this is a good one. Um, and the question is this. What is steam fireman Tommy Bray's claim to fame? And who is the driver that he will forever be associated with? First person to send us the correct answer, either as a comment YouTube or Spotify or by email or on X, gets a shout out on the show. And if you think you know, let us know. Indeed, that, that the bloke who skipped to the end, I remember many years ago on... on- Unreal. I saw a piece of reader research that said something like six percent of readers start reading at the back. <laughs> so in the next issue of Rail, I put a little paragraph on stop and examine that quoted this and said, So if you're one of these, welcome to this new issue of Rail. <laughs> that's very good. I always used to start with the sports pages, and they were well, always there the you back, go. So <laughs> that's, that's that's good fun. Yeah. Anyway, look, this fun can't go on forever, regrettably, and that's all we got time for this week. We really do hope that you've enjoyed the show. Um, as much as um, as we've enjoyed um, discussing the various issues. Don't forget to give us that thumbs up or subscribe so you get notifications about new episodes. As we do more and more, it's the best way to ensure you never miss anything new. And we do not want you to do that. But for now, until next time, it's goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>